0: Me about this is how she was able to do it so cleanly and never be found again. I mean, she must be 300 pounds. You know, someone like that just doesn't get lost in a crowd, even in a big city. And this is a big city, you still don't get lost in a crowd when you are enormous. Oh, you're gonna take me home tonight. Oh. Welcome everybody to the first ever Bad Route podcast. I'm your host Sean Brett, and I'm here to take you through the fantastic, wonderful crime-solving show hosted by Robert Stack, Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, It was a show that ran from 1987 all the way through to 2002, under different networks, and and it made a brief, although very unsuccessful comeback in 2008 hosted by Dennis Farina which yes we won't talk about that we'll just pretend that never happened but i'm here to talk about the uh the run from 1987 to the through to 2002 so so who am i and what i like about this show well um I've I've loved this show for such a long time. Um, I remember watching it as a kid in Australia with my dad. Um, I used to watch it late at night when it was on, and uh, I think it first came to our shores. Um, it was a bit late, uh, quite a bit later than what the U.S. audience got. Uh, so we started getting it. I think in the early 90s. I remember it used to be on. It was on sort of about 9:30, I think, and I just remember just the creepy music the creepy reenactments uh, Robert Stack just his uh, just his presence and his voice you know he was just such a magnificent host and I, I truly believe he's you know the main reason if not one of the one of the reasons that the show had such a long lifespan because he was just able to you know just be recognised as as the voice of Unsolved Mysteries and he was just well loved and he was just so talented and not just as an actor but also you know as a tv narrator as well he was just magnificent so um I, unfortunately um I, I sort of lost lost track with the show during the 90s probably the late 90s i think it disappeared from our screens, and and i thought you know i always I always thought back to the that amazing show and i thought oh, i hope one day maybe i'll get some tapes of it or on dvd and um, and It took really until 2008 when I was looking at some other show on YouTube and I just came across a little screenshot of um, Unsolved Mysteries and I said, oh wow, I remember that show, that was fantastic. So I, I looked at it and from memory I, I remember that it was, I think it was the Michael Rosenblum case, uh, the young man who disappeared under s- mysterious circumstances in Pennsylvania. Um, And from there, there were so many cases uploaded at that point to to YouTube and you could really watch almost most of the main cases that uh, were memorable and that's how I got it started. And I joined an online forum called uh, the Sitcom's Online Message Board which has a massive Unsolved Mysteries community and I recommend that any fan who wants to talk more about the show go there and uh, it's really fantastic. You can search for any case that... um, that that you can think of and there will no doubt be a long thread about it so so I went on there and eventually I sort of found some I found other fans who sort of had other cases which I didn't have so we managed to sort of get some episodes together and uh, I was able to sort of expand my knowledge of this this awesome show and um, I obviously about three or four years ago those episodes on YouTube were all taken down as we know by the two uh creators of the show uh John Cosgrove and Terry Dunn Moore so uh you know fair enough that you know it was up there illegally but you know that that's one thing that they just haven't understood all this time up until this year at least or 2017 that you know there is a big fan base for this show and there was no other way at that point to watch the show this is going back three or four years ago so again a lot of fans had to go underground to even find episodes so and then it was announced um late 2016 so a year ago that um amazon prime had picked up um the old robert stack episodes and we're going to release them season by season and and they've all been released now um I'm not sure if there will be any further episodes released. There are a lot of missing segments, unfortunately. Um, you can count... Uh, there's, a, there's a forum on that message board I mentioned on sitcom, sitcoms online. There's there's heaps and heaps of episodes that haven't been included and others have been put in their place and moved around and so forth. So, uh, But still, I mean, look, at this point, um, we thought we'd never see uh, the show on TV again or on any tv format or on any platform so to have that it's it's amazing and it's just to be able to great it's been great to be able to sort of find all these missing links that you know f- fans have never seen and and to have the broadcasts in their original quality as well um which has been it's been fantastic so thinking of a name for the for the podcast um i actually had i've been throwing around having uh, doing a podcast for a while i mean i I like to think I have a great knowledge of the show and its history and I think I've seen most of the, at least the main segments of the show hundreds of times over the years and I've um, bored my family and my friends to tears about how great this show is and all these different cases and you know they've all said oh why don't you just start a podcast or something and talk to fans about it and I said well that sounds like a good idea so I will." So, um, in term, yeah, as I mentioned, I was thinking of a name for the sh- for the podcast. I actually had um, thought about a name, but um, uh, it was I was actually thinking of calling it um, perhaps it's you. But uh, I actually yeah, that name got taken by another great podcast um, by Samantha and Liz, which I listen to. Um, th- those two girls do a great job, and I um, also uh, listened to um, Uncovering unexplained mysteries which is hosted by josh and mike those two dudes do an excellent job and um go check them out as well i also listen to another podcast um about unsolved mysteries called the stack pack uh those guys do an awesome job um the three of them you know they deal in fact and they also do comedy as well and you know it's a good combination of of both of those things um i also enjoy listening to Robin Worder's uh, podcast, um, "The Trail Went Cold," which is uh, more of a factual uh, podcast. It's 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 not really a, a comedic podcast. It's really just you're straight down the line facts about um, unsolved mysteries. Um, he also yeah. does different um, cases which weren't from the show, so I, I re- definitely recommend you also check that one out. So again, I'll try and tell you how I got my name of the podcast. It was. Um, I was looking at the, um, the, the case of uh, Dexter Stefanik, who was an elderly gentleman who took a, a, a multi-state trip in his car, and instead of staying at um, hotels or motels, he decided to stay at rest stops. And unfortunately, he, he ended up at the Bad Route rest area, which is in Glendive, Montana, or near Glendive, Montana and unfortunately he was abducted from the rest stop and killed at another site and uh, yeah i thought well you know the bad route rest area it's such an odd name for you know rest areas like why would you stay why would you stop even at a place called the bad route you know especially at night you know it's very very creepy sometimes these 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 rest areas where you don't know who's lurking around the corner but anyway um, it's definitely very iconic, and I thought it was a good name for the podcast. And doesn't feature the the name of the show as well, so I think that's quite important. As other podcasts have put the name of the show in their title, and they've had to take it back, unfortunately. So that's another reason. So the first uh, segment we're going to talk about here on the on the Bad Rap podcast, we're going to talk about. Uh, Donald Kemp which was uh, the first ever segment um, uh, aired on on unsolved mysteries and uh, as most of you know uh, Robert stack wasn't wasn't actually the the first host of the show it was actually an actor um, named Raymond Burr who had a long career in television and movies and radio as well and theater he was a very talented actor and uh, I think he was best known for uh, the, the cop show Perry Mason, which he starred in in the late 50s and in the 60s, and then also in a later version of the show um, in the 80s and also um, into the 90s, and he passed away in 93, so, um, but he was a good choice. I, I, thought, he was, I thought he did a, d- a decent job as host, actually. Um, he probably wasn't as dynamic or as creepy as uh, Robert Stack, which is o- obvious. Um, he sort of had a more subtle approach to it. He he just he, he just had that sort of cop kind of um, presentation, and yeah, I, I thought he was quite good. And if Robert Stack couldn't um, wasn't able to host the show, uh, I would have been happy if Raymond Burr continued. I don't know if the show would have been as popular um, you know, had he continued on as the host. And obviously, this is the only one he did. So he, he only did one special after this. Carl, another actor named Carl Carl Malden, took over for um, specials two and three, and then from then on, from special um, from the next set of specials. So Robert Stack um, did some specials as well. So he did uh, he did special four, five, six, and seven, and then the series got um, got picked up as a regular series by NBC and. Um, So yeah, so by by the end of October nineteen eighty eight, sorry, the start of October eight nineteen eighty eight, the series launched into its regular weekly format, and so this is this is a good um, almost a year and a half before that show got got its weekly run. So this was actually. on January twenty, nineteen eighty-seven. So um, yeah, this is a while before it, it was even conceived that this would be a weekly show. Um, as I said, it was a one-off special at the time, and the next special would be on May 25, 1987, which was hosted by Carl Molden, as I mentioned, and then into September, uh, he'd uh, he'd host another one, Carl Molden. So there was a big gap between all the specials, and then Robert Stack would host his his first special, which was the fourth special which was on November 29, 1987 um, and yeah so actually it's quite interesting really from 1987 through to uh, sort of mid 1988 the specials were kind of spread across um, you know a couple of months um, you know but um, I see here that um, yeah, the 6th and 7th special were um, they were t- uh, about Twelve days apart. So I think at that point, then it was said, "Oh, this show's doing quite well. So we're we'll actually making it into a series later in the year, which is what they did." So, so the first case I'm going to talk about, as I mentioned, is Donald Kemp. So it's um it's a fairly interesting mystery. I wouldn't say it's the most exciting mystery. Um, it's yeah, it's a it was a good start. It was a good case, but it wasn't as controversial or you know perhaps as memorable even as um. As the other later cases, but it got off to, uh, it got the show off to, uh, you know, kind of a, a creepy sort of start. So uh, there are actually four, four mysteries on this episode of the first special. So of course you had this one with Don Kemp, and after you had a very, uh, very interesting case, which I might talk about in another, in the next podcast or later da- down the line, uh, the death of Roger Wheeler Senior which was like a mob hit and it involved a few different parties. So that was, um, that was an excellent case. Um, actually, all the cases on this were good. Um, another one, uh, the next one after that was um, you had Pat Mealbuck who was um, find, trying to find her uh, the identity of her father and um, trying to prove the identity of her father, I suppose, and her family's legacy. Um, and it turns out that it's it's almost confirmed. I don't know. I don't think it was ever confirmed as such, but I think all points uh, led to the fact that she was actually a illegitimate daughter of um, of John Dodge, which who of course was the along with his brother Horace was the founder of Dodge Brothers, which is of course one of the the top. Um, Car makers in the world, and uh, that was a very good case. And I will talk about that in the, in the next c- couple of podcasts. I think that was a really fa- fascinating case. And um, yeah, and the last episode on this special was um, it was like a bank robbery. Um, Terry Lee Connor and Joseph Joseph Doherty. Um, so that was another good case. So this 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 special was fantastic. I really, I, to me, this is actually one of my favorite episodes of the whole series. It, was, it just really. Got the show off to a fantastic start. So let's get into Donald Kemp. On November 16, 1982, a Chevy Blazer was found abandoned in the desolate Wyoming Prairie. Its doors were open, the engine was running, and clothes were strewn all over the highway. Its 35-year-old owner, Donald Kemp, was nowhere in sight. Four years later, and just a few miles from where his car was abandoned, Don's body was found. Signs pointed to Don perishing in a blizzard three days after he disappeared. However, Don's family raised suspicions on that assumption. Mary Kemp, Don's mother, is convinced that her son was murdered and challenged the sheriff's finding that he died in a blizzard with evidence to support her claims. Donald Kemp was a promising young advertising executive in New York City until he was severely disabled in a traffic accident. It took him three years to recover and he lost all interest in returning to Madison Avenue. His sister Kathy Doe mentioned that Don lost interest in his materialistic lifestyle and wanted a simpler way of life. In September 1982, Don sold everything he owned, bought a sherry blazer, and began his long drive west. His destination was Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where he intended to write a book about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. The day before he disappeared, he was seen in a Western museum in Cheyenne. He wandered through the exhibit for two hours, speaking to no one and he also left behind his attache case which contained some important personal items including travellers checks, diaries and his driving glasses. Shortly after Don called asking the museum had he left his attache case behind and after being informed he did he said he would be in to retrieve it. Oddly he never came in to pick up his case. The following day two highway patrolmen found Don's abandoned blazer. It had been there since 7.30 that morning in the patchy snow a single set of footprints led from the vehicle into the empty prairie. The patrolman questioned why anyone would abandon their vehicle and walk into the prairie. Don's mother is convinced that he was abducted whilst the sheriff says he walked off due to being mentally disturbed and perhaps wanting to walk out on his life. A plane searching for Don as a missing person recovered no sight of him. Later that day, a ground search recovered some of Don's personal effects a mile away from the highway near where the single set of tracks begun. Mary Kemp believed that they were put there by someone else other than Don. Day two of the search led the trackers to a barn six miles from the highway. Inside the barn were some sticks apparently arranged as if someone was to start a fire, and also three socks. Which is kind of odd, three socks. Three days later, after he disappeared, a blizzard made it impossible to continue the search as if it as it was presumed that Don had died in the storm. Three years later, a group of hunters discovered Don's remains a few miles from where his blazer was abandoned. The autopsy showed no signs of a struggle. The sheriff does believe Don attempted to make it back to his vehicle after hiding from searchers the previous two days during the search, but he was unable to make it back before the blizzard ultimately took his life. Five months after Don supposedly died in the blizzard, Don was apparently seen at a travelling exhibit of Abraham Lincoln memorabilia in Casper, Wyoming. Mary Kemp spoke to a bartender there who also distinctly remembers serving Don. One of Don's friends also remembers uh, receiving six different telephone messages from Don on her answering machine. One of the messages contained a phone number. The phone number was traced to a caller in Casper, Wyoming. The young man who was renting the trailer said that the phone company had made a mistake and that he had no knowledge of Don Kemp or his whereabouts. Mary Kemp attempted to contact the young man in the trailer and after finally reaching him by phone, she was told he knew nothing about the phone calls and nothing about her son. Mary was convinced otherwise and after pressing him further, the man hung up on her. The young man was also questioned by police about Don Kemp and his disappearance and the police came to the conclusion that he had nothing to do with Don Kemp and. He had nothing to do with his disappearance or even his whereabouts and three weeks after he was questioned he left the trailer and left casper mary kemp is convinced her son was abducted from where his car was abandoned and taken to casper and his body dumped in the area where his remains were found uh, and the police were always convinced and to this day are still convinced that he died in the blizzard Mary Kemp never accepted the findings and, and claimed up until her death in 2014 that her son was murdered by the ma- young man in the trailer whose name was Mark Dennis. Uh, the, the telephone calls also remain a mystery, as, uh, as, the, as Don's friend mentioned in the segment, Julie Alio, uh, her number was unlisted. Uh, different theories around have um, summarised that um, perhaps Don Kemp's address book was found, um, at the museum, and perhaps phoned his friend uh, as a prank. Um, while others have suggested that he might might have been abducted upon leaving the museum, which is um, you know why Alio uh, was convinced that it was Kemp's voice on the voicemail messages. Um, one or two other theories theorise that um, Kemp may have been targeted in in relation to his research on. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, believing he perhaps had discovered something um, that would have caused shockwaves and he was consequently uh, silenced. Um, Seems a bit far-fetched, but um, those theories are out there. Um, In the years following um, Don Kemp's death, uh, some of his research notes were actually stolen and several people who have taken possession of these notes have actually died in... Um, suspicious circumstances. Uh, there's a good um, a good blog about um, about this case on um, a website I've come across called mysteriousuniverse.org. Uh, goes into further detail about different conspiracy theories and and um, names of other people who have come into contact with Don's notes as well. So it's very good. So check that out if you want to read more about this case. And also check um, the sitcoms online message board, um, the Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, forum is is fantastic for uh, finding more information out about cases, and I've been a member there since two thousand and eight. Um, and you can just search for any case that um, that you're interested in, and it, there'll be no doubt once uh, already started. And and you can add your thoughts to that. And and it's it's just forums like that that have really given this show a new, a new lease of life. You know, it's been a fantastic year for fans of Unsolved Mysteries. Um, you know, particularly with the the release of the Amazon Prime um, episodes, um, I I myself never thought we'd see the, those episodes would ever see the light of day in a in a legal uh, website where you can access them. You know, they were taken off YouTube um, by uh, John Crossgrove and Terry Dunmore a few years ago, and we thought, oh, well, that's it. We'll have to go underground to get our hands on these episodes, but. Um, you know, but it, it's like those those forums and and on Facebook, etc. That's why this show is just getting more and more fans every day. So it's 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 really it's really been a fantastic year, 2017, for you know for 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 the show. So anyway, so get on there and 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 in summary, now of uh, the Donald Kemp case, um, I d- I don't think there's much more to it. I think Don just died in a blizzard and. Um, I think perhaps he was he did have some mental issues after his his accident and he became disoriented and um he just wandered off into into the empty prairie and um unfortunately just lost his way and and succumbed to the blizzard so um um I mean did the guy did Mark Dennis have anything to do with it the young man from the trailer it's yeah, it's it's certainly very very peculiar the um, the phone calls and and all that and uh, however the police at the time they they didn't think so so he was um, he wasn't charged or he wasn't even um, really kept as a person of interest and he left uh, he left Casper after shortly after after being interviewed so um, so anyway so that was the the first ever case yeah it was a pretty good case I thought. Um not to rag on Don's mother too much but she kind of seems like she'd kind of be like a nightmare mother-in-law uh, type lady I think she's um, she does sort of have that kind of persistent annoying type personality but look I mean she was trying to get to the bottom of um, of her son's death so thought it was pretty uh, pretty ballsy of her to actually go to the trailer and confront the uh, Can confront um, Mark Dennis about um, about the phone calls, and um, this was the first of many cases where you'd have a family member disagreeing with the police findings, and they'd be th- they'd be very popular throughout the series. And to be honest, those cases were never my favourite type of cases. I Always kind of tuned out of those ones. The suicide versus foul play ones as well were just very. Annoying and frustrating to watch, and ultimately, you know, I think the police usually got it right in in their version of events. So, anyway, so that's that was Don Kemp, and as I mentioned, it was very uh, a very good case and a very good start to the series. So next, we're going to talk about a, another missing persons case, and in this case, it's the disappearance of two children. And this case was remembered best by the grim photograph of the two children, who at the time were thought to be possibly um, Tara and Michael. Um, they, they were both in the back of a white van. Um, both children were tied and gagged. So, um, so on the morning of September 20, 1988, Tara Calico set off for a regular 35-mile, uh, which is 54.7 kilometers, bike ride. From her home in Berlin, New Mexico, uh, that's quite a long bike ride. Um, apparently, it's a re- her regular route. Um, so, yeah, that would take a, a long time. She must be a real um, you know, passionate bike rider and not a, not afraid to go long distances. So, I know I um, I like to ride um, bicycles myself, and uh, I don't think I've uh, I've ever ridden f- uh, fifty-four kilometers in in one ride but anyway, um, her mother Pat said it was just a normal routine ride and her stepfather John mentioned that uh, there were many witnesses who saw her ride that day and that he had hoped that they could help locate Tara. Eyewitnesses had stated that they had seen Tara riding her bicycle down Highway 47 outside Berlin on the day she disappeared. They also stated she was being followed by a 1954 light-coloured Ford pickup truck with a camper attached. Five months earlier, on April 21, 1988, nine-year-old Michael Henley Jr. had gone on a camping trip with his father and a family friend in the Zuni Mountains of New Mexico, 75 miles from Tara Calico's home. The three were at the campsite less than 20 minutes when Michael disappeared. Michael's family along with the police and National Guard conducted a month-long search. However, no trace of Michael was found. Now, on June 15, 1989 and more than uh, 1200 miles from where Tara and Michael had disappeared, a woman in Port St. Joe, Florida, took a a routine trip to her local convenience store. Upon entering the store, she happened to notice a white van parked in the space next to her car. When the woman left the store, she noticed a Polaroid photograph face down in the empty parking spot where where the van had been. The photo contained a young girl and a boy tied up with their mouths sealed with duct tape and it appeared to be taken inside a white van. The woman took the picture to the police and the national media ran hundreds of stories about the grim photograph and Michael and Tyra's parents happened to see one of the stories and claimed to have recognized the two children in the photograph as their missing children and contacted the Florida police. A forensic artist compared actual photos of Tyra and Michael and compared them to the two children in the Polaroid picture and concluded that with 85 percent certainty that it was Tyra and Michael However at the time the FBI wasn't completely convinced of this outcome and viewers were asked to help find Tara and Michael and also um, the white cargo van which contained uh, no windows and a sliding door on the side. It was also noted that the Polaroid was a recent photograph which gave hope to the families that their children were still alive. So, um, there is a partial update to this case. Uh, It was later proven that the boy in the grim photograph was not Michael Henley, and that he sadly died of exposure to the wilderness. His body was found in 1990, just a few miles from the campsite where he was last seen. Um, His disappearance um, is no longer considered to be connected to Tara's, and unfortunately, the young boy in the photograph has uh, never been formally identified, so, uh, that's extremely sad. So they've kind of solved, I guess, one part of that section of the of the case. But, however, I mean, the boy wasn't even Michael. So there's another um, missing boy uh, taken uh, around that time and uh, to this date boy has never been identified either so investigators also no longer believe that tara was the girl in the photograph and apparently received leads that suggest tara was killed in a tragic hit and run incident on the day that she vanished Uh, fragments from her sony walkman and cassette tape uh, were found along her bike trail however her body was never found and those responsible for her death or disappearance have never been arrested so perhaps there was a a witness to her, um, her being knocked off her bike and killed but uh, that that seems to have never gone any further. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see if uh, there's any new light shed on that little piece of information. Tara's family moved to Florida where the photo was found in 2003. Uh, Sadly, her mother, Patty died in 2006. Her biological dad died in 2002 who wasn't featured in the broadcast. Uh, But however, her stepfather, John, who was in the broadcast, still keeps hopes that she will be found one day. So in conclusion, neither child in the photograph were Tyra or Michaels. That means there were two other children abducted from other families. So this case just continues to get more and more sad and depressing as I mentioned. Uh, hopefully Tyra or remains can be found and the two um, unidentified children in the polygraph picture can also be identified. Uh, in the broadcast, uh, the photograph was really the main, um, uh, you know, the main part of the, the segment but sadly, I mean, the photograph really um, didn't shed new light on the 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 whereabouts of the two children. And it sort of created, um, I guess, a whole new case of, you know, who, who are those other two children that the ones that were actually in the photograph, you know, as they weren't Michael or Tara. For me, it's definitely one of the most remembered segments of Unsolved Mysteries, mainly due to the photograph. It was just so creepy and eerie and uh it got a lot of traction not just from on the show, but it got a lot of traction around the world and um yeah, the information is still available online to read about and on forums, as I've mentioned earlier in this in the podcast. Uh also um, on the Charlie Project, which is a great person, uh, missing persons website, particularly for children as well. Um, so you can check that out. So, next, I'm going to try and take a bit of a lighter turn. And the first two cases haven't exactly been the most lighthearted of segments. So, next, we're going to talk about a lady by the name of Bonnie Wilder, or as Robert Stack called her, the Fat Lady. So this one's a fraud case, and it's easily um, one of the most remembered cases in the show's history. So Atlanta, Georgia, August 4, 1986, which actually was my second birthday, um, which is pretty funny. um, A woman named Bonnie Wilder walked into a new department store. Um, Apparently, uh, this store was named co I can't confirm that but uh, from reading on certain forums about this case apparently that's what the name of the store was and it didn't last that long the store and I think obviously what happened what Bonnie did here probably was a big cause of that um Bonnie was new to the area and she was responding to an advertisement for a bookkeeper Lisa Penns, the former personnel manager of the store said that the response to the ad was terrible and that if she didn't get someone who was on drugs um, in for an interview that was a good day bonnie was apparently chosen due to due to the low amount of applicants and what appeared to be a fairly good and fitting work history in line with what the store needed in an applicant lisa mentioned that she also seemed to have an eccentric personality and was also a very large woman uh, which (laughs) that won't be the last fat reference you'll hear on this podcast Um, later on you'll hear quite a few more. Um, Arthur Aaron, a former store manager, also said that Bonnie was a model employee with great knowledge and expertise and also gave that little bit extra. Bonnie was given the responsibility of handling the store's daily cash flow. According to her associates, she single-handedly kept the accounting department together. Some of them were surprised at her expertise. One of them uh, Thelma Nolan thought she might be more suited to working as a bus driver, or in a lunchroom, or even in a kindergarten. So yeah, you know, throw out all the the jobs you think a fat lady might might have. You know, why not say that she might work in a office all day, or she might work as a crossing guard attendant, or she might work as a security guard. So. <laughs> All these um, you know these fat jobs that you know, she mentions, Arthur was quite funny. She did say though that she was a very honest, uh, clean type person, and she was also very popular amongst her workmates, although she did seem reluctant to talk about herself. Um, all she would reveal to her to the people at work was that she was from Florida and that she had a husband and a son still living there. Her associates put this down to her being a private person and never suspected her of hiding anything. Six weeks after starting her job, on on September 22, she uh, went up to each store cashier with an unusual request. She wanted all the cash from the register to be put into brown paper bags and taken up to her in the office. She said she was a little bit behind and she could use the help. She personally guaranteed that all the machines would be refilled by the morning. No one had any concerns about these requests. The cashiers were all new to the system and all looked up to Bonnie as someone who they respected and was part of the management team. At approximately 9.30, just before staff were leaving for the evening, Bonnie noted to the guard and to the staff that she had forgotten her bag. Whilst her co-workers waited for her, Bonnie returned to the vault where she kept the cashier's money. She began to fill her oversized handbag with the cash, And a few weeks prior, uh, Bonnie apparently was instrumental in overturning a store regulation which required security checks of employees' bags at the end of the day. She argued that it would be detrimental to the staff's morale and the management agreed, which is completely ridiculous. I mean, you know, to be so, um, you know, ignorant and, you know, just stupid to have such a, a thing in place and to... And to just overturn it like that, I mean, this is going back um, 30 years ago. So I guess maybe people were a bit more trustworthy back back in the day or they just thought that you know no one would, would be able to pull off a scheme like this. So um, anyway, um, all of the employees left as normal. One employee noticed Bonnie uh, getting into a taxi. The next morning, the day shift of cashiers checked their registers. They all came up empty, as did the store's vault. $20,000 in untraceable cash was missing and so was Bonnie Wilder. An investigator named Vicky Bosma um, was called in to help track down Bonnie Wilder. Vicki began with Bonnie's original job application. The information about the school she attended showed that she ha- um, they had been torn down or changed as far as names go. Um, Employment wise she chose businesses that were bankrupt and Branches of the federal government without enough proof to show she actually worked for the federal government. A lot of information was put on there, but nothing that could be truly verified. So this information coming to light, um, it kind of it was uh, sort of good investigating by Vicky, and um, so this led to the fact um, that uh, the cost Lisa Pence, uh, the former personnel manager, it cost her her job. Uh, uh, due to the lack of background checks, so uh, I think that's fair enough. I mean, you know, I think she she did mention that um, she had trouble with applicants and even getting in applicants and ones who were on drugs came through her door. But she obviously seemed desperate to get someone to um, to fill this position, and she obviously didn't do her uh, due d- diligence. So, um, so I guess that's why she lost her job and. It also probably explains why she seemed to act um, quite hostile, particularly at the end of the segment um, towards Bonnie, um, and we'll get to that at the end. Um, Bonnie did make one key mistake amongst all this. She did let herself get photographed amongst her co-workers in the lunchroom. This photograph was widely circulated, and police traced Bonnie Wilder to an address in the Midwest. However the woman living at the address despite having the same name and hair colour didn't match Bonnie's um, weight description and that was by a long way and she couldn't have possibly dropped so much weight in a week's time. This information um, the fake Bonnie used was actually this other Bonnie's real work life history and also certain uh, physical details about her apart from the weight obviously. Um, further investigation showed that five other store robberies was also engineered by a woman fitting Bonnie's description. In each case, uh, a different alias was used. She ran similar scams in Florida, Louisiana and Tennessee. Her estimated take in the, in the, um, in the ten robberies uh, across those states was between $350,000 and $400,000. Bonnie also took more than cash. She also stole personnel files, including her old store manager's file belonging to Lisa Penn's in Atlanta. Uh, at the end of the segment, Lisa questioned how someone who weighed 300 pounds could get away with something like this so cleanly in a big city. You don't get lost in a cl- in a crowd when you are enormous, is what she said. And I've got to say, that was one of the funniest things I've ever seen on this show. And it's, uh, you know... Normally the show is so dark and creepy and mysterious, but um, you know, this episode or this segment was just one of the ones where a lot of these things just popped up, and you know, it's good to have a, a laugh when you're watching a show that's uh, quite serious. So, um, so this case, according to various sources, is partially resolved. So I'm kind of referring to the um wiki and a few other sources here. Um, Bonnie has since been captured and positive, positively identified as Dora Mae Peterman. In 2003, she was found guilty of stealing Lisa Penn's personnel file and sent to prison. So this, um, this actually happened in 1986, but wasn't featured on Unsolved Mysteries until 1989. And uh, she was only convicted of, Lisa, of um, stealing uh, Lisa Penn's personnel file all the way in 2003 so it took a long time for her to be even just convicted of that um of of that crime um so the other other charges such as the embezzlement um have not been prepared against peter I Min mean, and i i think perhaps the statute of uh, limitations expired i know it took a long time to even identify her so i mean for a long time she was just known as bonnie wild and they even knew that wasn't her real name so, um, you know, given all that time passed, I guess they could only convict her of of uh, fraud. Um, according to a certain social media um, site, she's still alive, and she now resides in Columbus, Ohio, and apparently <laughs> herself was a partial victim of a fraud scheme um, involving an aged care agency, which ran afoul of the state. So poor Bonnie, you know, she wanted her cake and she wanted to eat it too, and it didn't quite work out for her in the end. But um, whatever happened to the money I guess we don't know and I don't know if we, we ever will know so um, yeah very memorable case and um, yeah it was good to go back and go through it again so I hope you enjoyed that thanks so much for listening to the first Bad Route podcast it's been, it's been just awesome um, talking about these cases and digging a little deeper into them and it's interesting to see how much further some have come along and I know sadly as well many cases are still at a dead end uh, as they were back when they originally aired, but I think that's what fans love about um, about this show is um, just people airing opinions and having theories about all the cases and seeing if these cases do come to a resolution one day. Um, I don't have a set schedule for this podcast. Um, I do hope to do another one um, soon, in the next few weeks or a month. Um, and yeah, I'll try and keep you posted on my Instagram page and um, hopefully for the next one I'll have number, another member joining me as well talking about these awesome cases um, you can follow me, Sean Brett, on Instagram at cbreezy84 so that's S E A B R 84 um, and you can find me on the Unsolved Mysteries Message Board at sitcoms online as well Happy sleuthing and good night from me. To look at the woman, I would uh, think maybe she would drive a school bus or maybe even work in a lunchroom, be in a kindergarten, that type person.